Evening, everyone. Thank you, Jonathan. Please uh, kind of don't lose what we've been thinking about. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for leading us so helpfully uh, around and regarding the justice of God. Uh, and I kind of hope that what I'm going to share won't be a distraction. Uh, so please do hang on to, to what you've been thinking about and praying about and celebrating and singing about uh, regarding the justice of God. Let me tell you the four kind of key thoughts that I want to leave with you tonight. I'm going to tell you them up front, and then you can kind of continue thinking about the justice of God, and then you can come back to these at the very end. But beware of style over substance. Recognize the power of story. Accept that violence grabs attention. And realize that forgiveness requires commitment. If you do have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to, as, as Jonathan said, 2 Samuel chapter 14. It's page 318 in the, in the Red Pew Bibles. And we're going to kind of pick up uh, David's story following the rather dark and disturbing events of chapter 13, which Brian brilliantly took us through last week. 2 Samuel 13 is a chapter that tells us about the shocking rape of Tamar by her half-brother. And then it also tells us about the cold-blooded killing of Amnon by Absalom, his full brother, who may not have actually murdered Amnon, but he certainly arranged it and sanctioned it. And before we, we kind of move on with the story, I, I do think it's worth making or re-emphasizing the point that the sins of David's kids or rather his two sons in chapter 13, were almost a mirror reflection of David's own sins in, in chapters 11 and 12. David sinned sexually whenever he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He then sinned explicitly whenever he was complicit in the murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. But in the very next chapter, chapter 13, those very same sins come back to haunt David as his kids, his two boys, simply repeat his mistakes. And without going off on too much of a tangent before we kind of get into chapter 14, there is something of a warning here to parents about the example that we set and the choices we make and what we model to our kids. Our attitudes and our words and our actions have a profound influence on our kids. They shape our children. Our sons and our daughters are products of their environment to some degree. And as a father, David messed up and his sons simply followed suit. In his shadow and in his wake. And so can I say to parents and maybe even specifically to dads. Think carefully about the values you reflect, the decisions that you take, and the way you live your life before your kids. Okay, let's get into chapter 14, where the key character, or, or certainly the, the, the focus of attention in, in 2 Samuel 14, is Absalom, David's third son, we're told, born while he was in Hebron. He is the one who did, as I've said, arrange for the murder of Amnon. And he is the boy, the son, the man who's going to feature heavily and disastrously in the next few chapters. 
And although he entered the story or he kind of strutted onto the stage in chapter 13, it's here in chapter 14 that we're more formally introduced to him. We discover more about him. So let me read from verses 25 to verse 27 just before we unpack the whole chapter. But here is a kind of profile of Absalom. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, and he used to cut his hair about once a year because it was too heavy for him, he would wet, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. I think it's fair to say that we live in a time and in a culture where image is everything. Don't know what, hap- don't know what happened there. Bear with me two seconds. Where image is everything and style appears to be more important than substance. People today are preoccupied with appearance rather than the kind of inner qualities of people and character. Very, very few will ever say that, of course. But as you look around, particularly at the media, including social media, as you watch and as you listen and engage with advertising, it seems that style, how we look and how we dress, how we come across, physically trumps substance every time. And Absalom is introduced as an attractive man, just like his dad. Because in 1 Samuel 16, David is described as dark, handsome, and with beautiful eyes. Don't know why I looked at Jonathan. Just, Sorry, (laughs) I just glanced at him for a moment there and he smiled at me, so I'm totally distracted. Right, so David is introduced as a a handsome man, but also Absalom's sister is introduced as a beautiful woman in chapter 13. And we read here in, in verse 25 of chapter 14, Absalom was so good looking that his beauty was the subject of praise. But unlike his dad and unlike his sister, it's pretty obvious Absalom was vain. And his pride and his joy was his stunning head of hair, which he cut once a year and then weighed it. And the other thing that we're told about him is that he had three sons and he has a daughter. And we're told the daughter's name who he has decided to name after his abused sister. And here's my point, or here's a point. That's not much of a character reference. And therefore, alarm bells should be ringing. Yes, he's good looking, he has especially lovely hair, and he has children. That's all we're told. End of introduction. Nothing at all about his particular skills or his abilities, nothing about personality, nothing about character, and maybe more importantly, nothing about a faith or a relationship with God. Absalom's portrait is pretty empty compared to David's. Yes, David was introduced as dark and handsome and with, uh, what is it, with beautiful eyes. 
But what does it also tell us about David when he is introduced back in 1 Samuel? It says he was a skilled musician. He was a brave man. He was a good judge. And more importantly, we're told the Lord was with him. David was, yes, good looking, but he also had a good heart. God saw beyond the outward appearance and caught a positive glimpse of his core, his character, the real David. You see, Absalom was a man of style over substance, of appearance over aptitude, and as a result, he wrecked lives, including his own. And in our culture and in our context, we need to be very careful and wise about what we prioritize and what we value and what we pursue and applaud. If someone was introducing you or me, what would their portrait and profile look like or include? Okay, back to the start of the chapter. After Absalom killed his brother Amnon, it says, if you look at the very end of of chapter 13, it says that after he sanctioned or arranged for that murder, he was separated from his dad for three years. Now, whether Absalom was expelled from David's presence or he couldn't face it is a little unclear. But after 36 months, we read at the end of chapter 13, David longs to be reunited with his third son during his time in Hebron. But that in itself is a massive problem. Because if David is reunited with his son after however, whatever length of time, David needs to sort him out. David needs to deal with him for what he did. David needs to punish him for Amnon's murder. David needs to administer justice. Because that's what everyone would have expected. Surely, David, you're not going to overlook what one of your boys did to another. And so David faces a dilemma. He longs to be reunited, but he knows that everyone expects him to administer justice. And so he's caught in a kind of corner between a rock and a hard place. And Joab who is David's commander-in-chief, David's right-hand man, has been for a long time, he picks up on this dilemma and he devises a plan that would provide David with a way out. And it's a plan that involves a woman. And it's really interesting how many female characters have a significant influence on David's story. Even though they appear and disappear quite quickly from the narrative. So, for example, there's Abigail, there's Michal, there's the witch of Endor, there's Bathsheba, and now there is the wise woman of Tekoa. I'm not sure what to say about that exactly, but I just wanted to mention it in passing that the woman in a man's life can have a powerful and potential influence and can alter everything, says he who lives with four of them. Okay, have a look at verses two and three. Because what we find here is that the Joab appoints a gifted and eloquent actress. And he appoints this woman from Tekoa, which is the place where Amos was from, the Old Testament prophet. But he appoints this woman to make up a story, to grab David's attention. Joab 
is going to deliver the script or provide the script, and then this woman is to deliver the lines. And it works. But before we look a little closer at the details, this is a brilliant reminder, kind of second point, about the power of stories. You see, stories connect. And if they're told well, we get drawn into stories. They are compelling. It's why Nathan used a story when he, whenever he wanted to challenge and speak to David back in chapter 12 about his behavior. It's why Jesus told so many parables. Because those were stories in the gospels that caught people's imagination, that encouraged people to kind of lean in a little closer and listen carefully. Stories are a brilliant tool, a clever method of engaging with people. And Joab knew that, and so he appoints a storyteller extraordinaire. Never underestimate the power of story, nor the skills and abilities of a good storyteller or a good actor and actress. Don't get hung up on the fact that this story that this woman tells is made up. Parables were made up too. But whenever you're wanting to make a point, whenever you're wanting to teach a lesson and communicate a message, fictional storytelling is an art form to be enjoyed. That's why books and movies, etc., can be so effective at stretching us, even though they're made up. So let's listen in to this story, this made-up story, and hear its impact on David's life. Let's stand for the public reading of God's word, please. We're going to start at the start. Joab knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom, so he's picking up on what we hear, heard at the end of verse thir- or chapter 13. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought from there. And he said to her, and get this, pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotions. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. This, this is all a ruse. Then go to the king and speak these words to him. And note this, and Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman from Dekoa went to David, she fell with her face to the ground to pay him an honor. And she said, help me, your majesty. And the king asked her, what's troubling you? She said, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a fight with each other in the field, and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither, husband neither name nor descendant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, go home, and I will issue an order on your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, let my lord the king pardon me and my family, and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, if anyone says anything to you, bring them to me. They'll not bother you again. She said, then let the king invoke the Lord his God to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction, so that my son shall not be destroyed as surely as the Lord lives, he said. Not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, let your servant speak a word to my Lord the king. Speak, he replied. And then that's the bit. Here come the tables being turned. 
the woman said, why have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. And now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I will speak to the king. Perhaps he will grant his servant's request. Perhaps the king will agree to deliver his servant from the hand of the man who's trying to cut off both me and my son from God's inheritance. And now your servant says, may the word of the Lord the king secure my inheritance. For the Lord the king is like an angel of God in discerning good and evil. May the Lord your God be with you. Then the king said to the woman, don't keep from me the answer to what I'm going to ask you. Let the Lord the king speak, the woman said. The king asked, isn't the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And then the woman answered, as surely as you live, my Lord and King, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything. My Lord, the King says, yes, it was your servant, Joab, who instructed me to do this and who put all these words into the mouth of your servant. Your servant did this to change the present situation. My Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. And the King said to Joab, very well. I will do it. Go bring back the young man, Absalom. Grab a seat. I hope you kind of notice what happened there because this is a similar experience to what David had with Nathan. David's reeled in by a story. A story that David doesn't think is related to him, doesn't think is connected to him, only to discover that this story actually impacts his life and his situation and his circumstances. The woman from Decoa in verse 13 kind of turns the tables and says to David the king, how come you're prepared to do something for my son and yet you're reluctant to bring your own banished son back home? That's just like, boom. He's been God again. David once again has kind of been hoodwinked in a good way. His own indecision and failure to act justly has now been exposed via this brilliant piece of dramatic storytelling. David, if you like, is tricked into condemning his own actions as he passes judgment on what he initially thinks is a totally unrelated incident. That is genius. David realizes at the end of this incident and he accepts that, yes, okay, Joab, you've got me. I should send for my banished son, which he does in verse 21. You see, one of the strengths of good storytelling, whether it's verbal, whether it's written, whether it's visual, is that whenever people, whenever you get involved in the story of others, you can often end up thinking more clearly about your own. So for example, if you listen to a story about forgiveness, or if you watch a film about that issue, 
And as you enter into a story that seems to be unrelated or unconnected to your situation, you often do find yourself having to think about your attitude regarding that subject. Is there someone who's done me wrong and who I need to forgive? And for David, as as he listened to a story, not about forgiveness, but to a story about justice, he was quick to see, as he got reeled in, as this story connected with him, as as he connected with it, and then he started to think, well, hang on a wee minute, what about my own situation? And this woman said exactly that to him and said, you were able to listen to my story. You were able to pass judgment, and yet you know where you stand with regard to your son. He's still banished from your presence. And therefore, David goes, yeah, I get this. I do need to send for him. I do need to now do the right thing. And so we should never underestimate the power and importance of story and good storytelling. And at this point, the woman from Tekoa exits the story never to be heard of again. But her influence, like many of the other women in David's life, was significant. And just one other comment or thought that that maybe bears consideration is, isn't it interesting how often we are quick to pass judgment on others yet overlook similar behavior in our own lives? And I suppose it's, it's kind of similar to that tendency I often have to see the speck of sawdust in my brother's eye and yet seemingly overlook the huge plank in my own. And Joab goes... And he gets Absalom, who's been out of David's presence for three years, and he brings him to Jerusalem. But there's a sting in the tail. Look at this with me. Because although Absalom is brought to Jerusalem, David refuses to see him. And we've called this series Talking the Talk, partly because in the second half of David's life, from the point that he becomes king, David has an increasing tendency to do just that. He he talks a good game, but he doesn't follow it through all the time. He doesn't always do what he says, practice what he preaches. His actions sometimes betray his very words. And again, there's a real challenge in this for us. Does what we say and what we do match up? Is there a consistency between lip and life, between words and actions? Don't just talk about this stuff. Be about it. Live it out. For David, he talked a great game. Bring Absalom back. And I'm refusing to see him. And eventually, David sends for his son, who he now hasn't seen for five years. And look at verse 28. Or he hasn't seen for, sorry, three years. Look at verse 28. He doesn't see for another two years. And as time goes by during this two-year period, we, we get a further insight to the true character of this third son of David's. How style over substance is a pretty accurate description of him. Because in addition to murder, he's not afraid to use violence to make a point. He's not afraid to use violence to get noticed or to fast-track his cause. And unfortunately, we discover that violence works. 
it always has done. And to some extent, it probably always will do. Because you see, violence grabs attention. Because if you look at verses 29 and 30, Absalom tries to get Joab's attention. He's been separated from his dad for three years. He's now back in Jerusalem and his dad refuses to see him. And Absalom keeps saying to Joab, Joab, when can I go and see my dad? When can I go and see my dad? And so what Absalom decides to do is he sets fire to Joab's property. He torches his field, which happens to be beside Absalom's field. And as a result of his violent action, it gets Joab's attention. And Joab then goes and speaks to the king. And again, I think it's telling and it's tragic how for some people they are prepared to go to extreme lengths to get people to sit up and listen to them. They're prepared to use violence to achieve their purposes. And the fact is that it often works in a fallen world, in a broken, dysfunctional world. Violence does grab attention, but it is never right and can't be commended or copied. All it does is reveal what lies behind the facade. There actually was no substance to this man's life. He was all stay. Image was everything. But all that this violence did in order to grab attention was expose the true state of his heart. And that's what violence does. It exposes the mess of the human heart. Do we ever seek attention by less than honorable means? You know, as I reflected on this during the week, I thought, you know, I, I would never, I, I don't honestly think I would ever use physical violence to grab somebody's attention or to get my own way. And yet, am I ever guilty of pursuing and trying to get my own way via less destructive means, by manipulating people, by manipulating situations for my own benefit or to suit my own agenda or selfish desires? And the more I thought about that, the more I realized I can't distance myself from this story either. There are times I do it. Do we ever seek attention by less than honorable means? Absalom got himself noticed. And that prompted Joab to go and speak to the king, to David. And David is then persuaded after five years, and so he summons his son. And let's read the final verse of the chapter where it says this. So, Joab told the king what Absalom had said, and that's because he had grabbed his attention by burning his field. And then at last, David summoned Absalom, who came and bowed low before the king, and the king kissed him. And the chapter ends, and there's almost a sense, and they all lived happily ever after. And yet, as we discover, and we will discover next week, as Stephen takes us through chapter 15, if only. You see, the reconciliation that occurs here, it's only threadbare. It lacks substance and integrity. There's no dialogue between father and son. There's no coming together of hearts and minds. Again, it's all talk, it's all show. 
There's no forgiveness truly offered by David. There's no forgiveness truly received by Absalom. And the reason I say that is because of what does happen next. Because you see, true forgiveness changes lives. True forgiveness transforms hearts. True forgiveness repairs relationships. But none of that happens here. None of it. And again, as I bring this to a close, let me encourage us to apply this to our own hearts and minds and lives. Are there people or situations or circumstances around us that are crying out for a genuine, honest-to-God forgiving attitude and response? And I realize this is hard. It's far easier to say or do as little as possible. And that's what seemed to be happening here. David kind of embraced him, kissed him. And you're given this impression that they're reconciled and they're back together. But no, there's no true forgiveness. And for God, as we've been thinking about tonight, God didn't just say we were forgiven. He didn't just seal it with a simple kiss. But he sent his son who lived and died. Our forgiveness cost a fortune. It involves real action, real interaction. And any forgiveness that we offer needs to reflect a similar expense and response. Otherwise, it may end up threadbare and fragile as this was. And we pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And it's so important that we make sure this comes from the heart because forgiveness requires commitment. Otherwise, nothing really changes. And so four key thoughts from 2 Samuel 14. Beware of style over substance. We may live in a culture where image is everything. But it's so important that there is something deeper regarding our personalities and our character and our integrity. Recognize the power of story and how effective it can be in speaking into our lives. Accept that violence grabs attention, but it never justifies it. And forgiveness needs to be genuine. It requires commitment. Other ways, nothing really changes.